I'm going to pray. We're going to go to Colossians now. So if you've got a Bible with you, head to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 16 and finish out chapter 2 this morning. We're going to give thanks to God for His generosity amongst us, that He has been um, helping us grow in this area, that He's helping us become a church that's self-sufficient. I'm going to pray that God would speak to us now as we come before Him in the Scriptures. We ready? Three of you are ready. Come on, this, we, ought to be, we ought to be expectant when we open these scriptures that God will speak to us, that He'll minister to us, that He will transform us by His Spirit. Yeah? So let's pray that God would do that this morning. Join me. God, we thank You that You're a God who has been so abundantly good and generous towards us. We thank You that we get to play a small part with our generosity in building Your kingdom in seeing all of the wonderful ministries of this church established. God, I thank you for the generosity of your people that have contributed towards that. We thank you that we get to play a part in doing that. God, I pray now as we come before you in your word that you might speak to us. God, thank you that your word is living and active. And Holy Spirit, we pray now that you might speak to us as, as you address us, as you press upon our hearts truths that we need to hear, truths that we need to be reminded of, things that maybe are new to our ears for the first time. God, I pray that this morning there wouldn't be a single person that walked through these doors that wouldn't hear your voice. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all those who agreed said, Amen. 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 I am... Um, I, I, Got a bit of a confession to make. I think what I've done this week in my prep is I've made something that was really simple, complex, and difficult. Which is that's the that's that's a no-no as a preacher, right? You just want to make things clear and simple. But I think in my attempts to sound really smart, I've gone and made something that's really simple, complex. So track with me on this. I hope you, I hope you can follow me here. But what what I want to do this morning as I start is I want to paint a scenario for you, and it's a scenario I. Think Think you're going to be very familiar with, particularly if you're a part of a gospel community, particularly if you've ever been rusted on to bump in, bump out. All right, maybe this is really relevant for you because you were here this morning doing that. Thank you, Greg and Benny's GC, for serving us so well. Let's give them a quick round of applause. Thank you for that. But here's the scenario, and I want you to think of the question: What is more honourable? Out of these two choices, what is more virtuous? What, what thing does God desire? What response does God desire in this scenario? So it's Sunday morning. Your alarm goes off at quarter to eight. Now, that's pretty early for Sunday. Sunday should be sleeping day. And as you hit snooze, you're like, what? what? It's Sunday. And then you realize that your GC is rostered on for bumping. And there's this little moment that happens inside of you that's like, oh, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to go to church this morning and get there early and have to do all that heavy lifting and set up, and I really want to do it. Now, what do we do in that moment with that selfishness, that, that sin that rises in our hearts, that just wants to serve ourselves and not serve other people? What do we, how do we deal with that moment? Option number one, the alarm goes off, you hit snooze, that thought hits your head and you think, no, no, no. I'm going to deny myself the pleasure of sleeping in this morning and I'm going to get up and I'm going to drag myself to church and I'm going to serve people because that's what I should do. And it's not about my pleasures. It's not about me. It's about other people. And so I'm going to deny myself the pleasure of sleeping in on a Sunday morning and I'm going to go and I'm going to do what I ought to do. 
That's the first option. Remember, we're asking the question, what is more honorable? What is more virtuous? The second option is this. The alarm goes off, you hit snooze, that selfish thought rises in your heart, and then you think, no, no, actually, I'm going to go this morning, and I'm going to serve, and I'm going to get something out of this for me. Like Maybe there's a blessing in this for me as I come and I serve other people. Maybe there's some joy in this for me as I come and I serve other people and I see the joy that that brings people. I see how I've served them. And I'm going to go because this is going to bless me. It's going to make me feel good today. Now, out of those two choices, which is more virtuous? Which is more honorable? Which response does God desire of us? Well, We might think, well, surely it has to be the first. Because it's a choice of sacrifice. I mean, the second is a selfish choice, isn't it? That you're doing this for what you might get out of it. Isn't that selfish? So surely it's the first option that we do it out of a sense of duty and obligation and self-denial and self-sacrifice. That is the more honorable choice. That's the best way to deal with our sin. You see, we have a problem. The problem that we have is that we are creatures wired to pursue pleasure. And sometimes those pleasures are not right. Sometimes those pleasures are selfish. Sometimes those pleasures are harmful and destructive. And so it seems to be that the best solution to that problem is to suppress your desire for those pleasures, put a lid on that, self-deny, sacrifice those things. The question that is raised by this passage this morning How do we deal with that sin that arises in our hearts, with that selfishness that arises? This is what Paul says in verse 23. He says, These, that is, all of these options that are listed before this church, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All of these, Paul is is going to list three useless, defunct ways of trying to wrestle with our broken hearts. The question that this passage is asking is, what is the best way to deal with that sinful nature that rises up in us? I want to quote a fairly lengthy quote from C.S. Lewis on this because I think it speaks very well into this passage, into our culture and into our church culture as well. This is what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive And this is of more than philological importance. That is the study of language. This is more than just semantics and words. This is important because it shapes us. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of uh, of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was more important. I do not think... This is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we might follow Christ. And nearly every description 
of what shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to our desire, what we want. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is not part of the Christian faith. We have made this virtue of unselfishness, of sacrifice and self-denial, the primary marker of Christianity. Now it's there. It's a part of our faith. But when we make that thing primary, when we put that thing first, I think it has a number of implications. The first is that it means that Christianity becomes about a denial of joy and not the pursuit of the ultimate best joy that exists. Because that's what Christianity is. It's not a denial of joy. It's a pursuit of the ultimate joy. The second implication of that is I think what it means is that Christians end up with this reputation that we're just about killing people's fun. That we're straight 180s. That we're just out there to try and suppress all the fun that everyone's having. Like God sent Jesus to stop everyone having fun. Right? And there's and like maybe you're here this morning, you're like, that is exactly what I think about Christians. You know, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. You're like, that's it. That's been my experience of Christians. Or maybe you're a Christian yourself. You think, well, it certainly feels like that's what it's about. Well, I want to show you this morning from this passage in particular that that is not what Christianity is about. That it is far greater and bigger and better than that. Paul's concern in this passage is with this false teaching that's creeping into the church. His concern is that they're pushing this kind of spirituality that says, yes, you have Jesus, but you also need to add something else to that faith that you have. His concern, you'll notice there, he says two things. In verse 16, he says, I don't want you to feel judged. And then in verse 18, he says, I don't want you to be disqualified. That's his concern. That there is this teaching that is coming into this church here that says true spirituality, truly mature Christians, those who are growing in their faith, are those who will follow these set of rules, those who will deny themselves all of these pleasures, those who will seek after these ecstatic experiences where they'll receive this special revelation from God that's reserved for a few spiritual super-Christians. That's the problem with this church. And as Arnaldo so helpfully reminded us last week, that if we're in Christ, we have all fullness and freedom in Him. And so we ought not to be judged. We ought not to be disqualified. We ought not to feel condemned by these things. And so he's going to address three empty solutions to dealing with that indulgence of the flesh to dealing with that sin, three empty solutions for growing to be more like Jesus, three empty markers of what a mature, growing Christian looks like. And the three things are this, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. I'm going to try and explain those as I go. I don't want that to be complicated. But firstly, legalism. Hopefully we get that one. Let's have a look at verse 16. Therefore, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, Paul addresses some of these issues in his letter to the church in Corinth, does he not? Where he addresses Christians who were 
abusing all of their freedoms in Christ to eat meat, to drink alcohol, to party and have fun. But in doing so, they were destroying the faith of their weaker brothers and sisters who, who felt that even though Christ has freed us to enjoy those things, that to enjoy them was a sin. And so he addresses this church in Corinth by saying, you're abusing your freedoms. The opposite is true here in Corinth. This is a church that is losing their freedoms, not abusing them, but losing them. People are laying condemnation on others because they're eating meat, because they're not observing this special religious day, because they're enjoying alcohol. And it seems that there's this attempt in this church for people to take their faith in Jesus and then kind of sync it with maybe some of their Jewish heritage or maybe some of their pagan background and just blend their new faith with their old ways in the hope that they'll just cover all bases, in the hope that maybe there's a bit of extra spirituality that they can add to their new faith in Jesus by bringing these things into the mix. Paul is saying, these things don't work. This is not a mark of what a genuine, growing, Jesus-loving Christian is, that they submit to these rules and regulations. These people are saying, if you don't do what we do, then you're not fully Christian, then you can't be like us, and we're going to exclude you from our fellowship. If you work on the Sabbath, if you have a glass of wine and a steak, you're out. Now, why is it that these are poor markers of genuine growing Christianity? Well, Paul says there in verse 17 that they're a shadow. Have a look at what he says. These things, that is observance of all of these rules, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All of those Old Testament regulations that you read, all of them are a shadow that point us forward to Jesus. The food laws. You know, you, you can't eat prawns. You, you can eat the, the thing that chews the cud, but not with a split hoof. All of those crazy rules and regulations that you find in Leviticus in the Old Testament, they're markers of what purity and holiness and set-apartness looks like for God's people. But in Jesus, we have been purified. We have been made holy. We have been sanctified and set apart. The Sabbath, the Sabbath is established to demonstrate a couple of things, that we are human beings that need rest and that we're entirely dependent on God. And then Jesus comes, the Lord of the Sabbath, redefines what that looks like, redefines what those laws originally meant, not how the Pharisees had tried to put a fence around the law and make it mean what they wanted it to mean. Jesus says, now, there is now a rest that's found in me and there is this future rest that lies ahead for you. You see, all of these laws are a shadow and Jesus is the reality. Just yesterday morning, I was making breakfast in the kitchen and the kids were there having their breakfast and the sun was shining through the kitchen window and my shadow was reflecting on the wall. And Judah looks at me and goes, Daddy, scary monster, and points at my shadow on the wall. And it just reminded me of this moment when he was a little bit younger when um, we were playing outside and the sun appeared from out behind of the clouds and he saw his shadow appear on the ground and he freaked out. He like ran, jumped up on me, shadow, shadow, right? I'm like, buddy, you don't need to be scared of the shadow, right? Because this is the substance. The shadow is 
me on the wall there because the sun is shining behind me. You don't need to fear this. A shadow points us towards the reality, to the substance. And all of those Old Testament laws ought to make us notice something. Jesus. So Paul is saying here, the law was to make us hungry for a Savior. The law was to demonstrate that we are sinful people that need help. The law was never intended to be a box-checking method of personal self-righteousness. That's impossible. So Paul says, look, these things are a shadow. The reality is found in Jesus. But the real issue here is that legalism prohibits something that Jesus has explicitly permitted. Right? You remember in Mark chapter 7, verse 18, he's talking to the Pharisees about the food laws, and he says this. He said to them, Then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that what goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. See, legalism takes something that Jesus has explicitly permitted and prohibits it. The problem is not that this is a vague area. The problem is that this is laying the law again on people when it doesn't apply to them anymore. The issue, the big issue with legalism is that it will only ever address the externals. Food, drink, days, clothes that you wear, all of those things address the outside. It never addresses the inside. And that's where the real problem is. See, legalism assumes that our problem is that we're just a little bit off. If we could just make a few tweaks to ourselves, then then maybe we'll we'll get ourselves right and we'll be okay with God. But Jesus says, no, no, that's not the problem. I haven't come to make bad people good. The problem is that you're dead in your sin and you need a Savior to rescue you and give you new life. Legalism minimizes our problem. You know, legalism can operate in a number of ways. When we elevate obedience to a primary position, when we make that of first importance, when we know the gospel's of first importance, it can operate in a number of ways. The first is it can operate inwardly. That obedience to laws and rules and regulations can be a means of self-justifying, that we do these things and then we feel good about ourselves and think, yes, well, God will now approve of me because I've done all of these things. Right? That's the first way legalism can operate, but it can also operate externally or outwardly. That is, it operates as a means not of justifying ourselves, but of justifying other people for our acceptance of them. And that's how it's operating in this church. The people have these laws and these rules and these regulations. And they're laying them upon another person in order to judge them and deem whether or not they're acceptable to God and acceptable to them. Paul says this is a woeful means of gauging whether or not someone is wrestling with their sin and is growing in Christ. It's empty. Let me just qualify that by saying this, that obedience is always a marker of spiritual maturity in its proper place. Obedience is always a marker of spiritual maturity in its proper place. What does what the Apostle John say in 1 John? 
In 1 John 2.5, in, in 1 John 5.3, he says, How do you know if you love God? It's if you obey his commands. But you get the order wrong and it turns into legalism. And so we don't grow out of dutiful obedience to God, out of rule keeping and box ticking. Paul's saying that that's not how it works. It's not about legalism. That's the first thing. The second empty way of self-made religion is mysticism. And what I mean by mysticism is this, that there is this pursuit of this hidden, secret, special knowledge that God only reveals to a, like a hyper-spiritual few. That is mysticism. It's taken all sorts of forms in all sorts of different religions. Christianity has had its own version of it throughout the centuries. But this church was wrestling with this tension. In verse 18, this is what it says. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. We'll come back to that one. The worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. You see, some were claiming that the true test of spiritual maturity, the true test of a growing Christian was that, that you have these crazy, wild spiritual experiences. Are you having a vision from God? Are you having this special revelation and knowledge that God is giving just for you? And possibly these experiences were connected with this, um, this ecstatic moment of worship that they were stirring themselves up in order to receive the revelation of God. And the result is this false humility. They're puffed up with pride. They think they're better than everyone else because they've received this special secret hidden knowledge. Now, the problem here is not that people were hungry for God. The problem here is not that people were pursuing Him in His Word. The problem is not that they were experiencing His presence as they worshipped Jesus. The problem is that they thought that the mystery of God was revealed for a special class of Christian. But Jesus has already told the secret. We heard that a few weeks ago. The secret is that anyone by faith in Jesus, can be saved. Like it's not a secret. When you tell someone a secret, it's not a secret anymore. Just like, I told the secret. There's no more mystery. God has revealed this. But yet there are some Christians saying, no, 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 there's a little bit more. There's a little bit more to know. If you just do this, if you just whip yourself out, then, then you'll be a super Christian. How might we be tempted to do this? And I kind of wrestled with this. I, I don't think that pointing the finger at the Pentecostal charismatic church and saying, ah, yeah, yeah, that's what they do. I, that's not what they do. This is a whole other thing altogether that's happening in this church. But how do, we, how do we do this? It might be that in, in our pursuit for an experience, say in, in corporate worship on a Sunday, that our pursuit of an experience in a personal devotion as we spend time in prayer and reading the Word, that what we're doing is we're actually pursuing an experience and not pursuing Jesus. That might be how we do this. Now, don't mishear me. An experience is important. Our faith is not just mere intellectual assent to a bunch of propositional truths. Our faith is that we experience God but the experience is a byproduct of encountering Jesus. 
The experience is a byproduct of our pursuit of Him, not the other way around. And so pursue Jesus, experience his presence, but don't pursue an experience hoping that you'll meet Jesus there. Pursue Jesus knowing that you will experience him as you do that. The mark of a genuine, loving Christian is someone who pursues wholeheartedly Jesus. You notice the solution that Paul has for them there. It's not whipping yourself up into this mysticism. The solution is by being connected to Jesus. Have a look at verse 19 and 20. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. There is a growth that comes from God that has Jesus as the source, that is connected to Him as the vine, that is the power that we spoke of a few weeks ago in Colossians 1.29. There is a kind of growth that comes from God, and there's a kind of growth that comes from us. Now, I don't know about you, but I know what kind of growth I want. I want the kind of growth that comes from God, the kind of growth that's not a result of my external religious hard work, but as a result of the inner work of the Spirit transforming me. The kind of growth of, of um, not you know just pull your socks up and try harder, but the kind of growth that reminds me of my, underst- of my identity in the gospel that you are set free, that in Christ you are full. That's the kind of growth that I want. It's the kind of growth that Paul wants to see. And so my question for you this morning is, are you enjoying Jesus? Like not just, are you reading your Bible? Are you saying your prayers? Are you going fellowshipping? You know, like, are you enjoying Jesus? Are there times of refreshment in the Lord Are you experiencing his presence? Are you being reminded of the the Father's love for you? Are you seeing the Spirit transforming your life? Are you enjoying Jesus? Because that's what our faith is about. It's about Jesus. So that's the second empty solution that Paul has that these false teachers are trying to lay on this church. The third is asceticism. Have a look at verse 18 firstly and then jump down to verse 20. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Or verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. By asceticism, what I mean is the severe and harsh treatment of the indulgences of the body, of food and drink and sex and social interaction, all of these things. It seems like they had a little saying going in this church. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They saw someone like, hey, hey, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's their measure and mark of maturity. The path to growth is about denying and suppressing these pleasures. Now, this this type of thinking is informed by a worldview that says... That we are spiritual beings 
that are trapped inside a physical, broken-down body. And the way to maturity, the way to enlightenment, the way to freedom is to get rid of all of the physical and just focus in on the spiritual. And so material matter is bad and evil, and we don't want anything to do with that. What we really want is to do with spiritual matters, Christian things. And it leads to a denial of physical pleasures, especially the pleasures of food, of alcohol, of sex, of social interaction. And I don't think we're immune from that. 21st century culture, I don't think we're immune from that. We think, well, oh yeah, maybe, you know, maybe the monastic movement, that was their problem. It's not our problem, right? But maybe there are some of you who think that you are saved and that you are made more like Jesus by your self-denial. That God approves of you more because you deny yourself. Because you make sacrifice. You are not saved by your discomfort. You are not sanctified because you are uncomfortable and self-sacrificial, right? It's the sacrifice of Jesus that saves you, not yours. You know, when Jesus said, take up my cross and follow me, he didn't mean take up your cross and just have a miserable life for the rest of your life. Right? I mean, it's not what he said. In fact, Elnardo reminded us last week when he took us to John 10.10 10, that following Jesus means having this abundant, overflowing life. So we can't possibly mean that. Take up your cross and follow Jesus because he who saves his life will lose it, but he who loses his life will save it. What is Jesus doing there? He's appealing to an inner motivation. He's saying, don't settle for this. I want you to desire something far greater. The motivation to lay your life down to sacrifice is the reward that you receive in saving your life and receiving Christ. There is no competition between your joy, your enjoyment in life, and glorifying God. Those two things are not at odds And so maybe there are some of you who feel like you are justifying yourself, you are sanctifying yourself because you're unhappy, because you're self-sacrificing. And you need to be reminded today it's not about your sacrifice, it's about Jesus. But maybe there are some of you today who, who are beating yourselves up over a cycle of sin. You, know, you, 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 you do this thing that you're ashamed of, that you know disappoints God, that you know is destructive in your life. And then for the next week, there's just this spiral of downward self-pity and beating yourself up. You're like, I shouldn't have done that. I'm such a horrible person. And God, I'm sorry. And, and, and after a week of beating yourself up and atoning for your own sin in your own flesh, then you go back to God and say, all right, now that I've dealt with my sin myself, now God accepts me and approves of me. Again, you do not atone for your own sin in your flesh. Christ atones for your sin in His. So maybe we are. Maybe we do wrestle with this. Maybe there are some of you who are seeking, even desiring, even looking for difficulty in life. Because you feel that when you walk through that season, you're somehow closer to God. 
as you bear up under the pressure of it, as you continue to hold firm in your faith that somehow God approves of you more because you're uncomfortable and you're still walking with Jesus. Not like those people who are happy and still walking with Jesus because it's easy for them. Maybe we are doing this. There is no distinction. Right? Paul says, no, no, that's not how it works. This isn't the super spiritual class of Christians here who are sanctified by their own self-sacrifice and bitterness and unhappiness. That's not the mark of what it looks like to wrestle with this sin in our lives. The mark is that we take that to Jesus. As C.S. Lewis says, that type of thinking is more stoic than it is Christian. So don't get sucked into asceticism. Because you have died with Christ to the elementary principles. That's what he says here in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to its regulations? You're not there. You're not bound to do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Christ has set you free. You've experienced fullness. That's what the Christian life is about. I don't know if you realize this, but God created you with five senses. And then he created a whole bunch of things to stimulate those senses in this beautiful world that he created. Everything that you see and touch in such abundance, with such color, with such flavors, God created so that you would enjoy life, not to make you miserable. I remember in my first year of Bible school, my theology lecturer said, He was talking along these lines and he said, you know what? Maybe you just need to go and lie in the grass today. Just go outside and lie on the grass and just feel the blades of grass through your fingers. And just breathe in and smell the grass and the flower and and listen for the birds and experience the joy of the warmth of the sun on your face. Just Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe for some of you, like after church, that's the best thing for you to do is just to go and enjoy something of God's good creation. Like go to Enmore Park and lie under the flight path and enjoy the planes flying a few meters above your head and thank God, right? But now just enjoy God's good creation. He's given you five senses and then created this amazing world for you to enjoy. And the, the thing is that we so quickly take those good gifts and then turn them into idols and worship them. The, the key is to enjoy them in Jesus. To, to enjoy them and not just thank God for them, but it's by our enjoyment of those things that we end up worshiping Jesus. That that makes him look stunning and magnificent and worthy of worship. When I say, look at my God. Look at all of these wonderful things he's created and I love them and I enjoy them. Takes us back to Colossians 1.15. Remember when we looked at that passage where Jesus, Paul says, everything has been created by Jesus. Everything has been created by him and through him and for him. And if all of the things that you can see have been created for Jesus, that means that, that material matter and human bodies, these aren't inherently evil and wicked things to be suppressed and denied because what we're really about is denying physical pleasures and chasing spiritual ones. That's not Christianity. 
We're enjoying our Creator who has made all of it for His glory, for our joy. And so I want to get back to that original question that I asked, that scenario that I posed. What is the more honorable, virtuous solution to our sin as it rises in our hearts? Is it to say out of duty, well, deny this pleasure, forget it, I'm going to self-sacrifice and do this? Or is it to say, I'm actually going to pursue my own good, my own joy in serving other people? Imagine you come to church and you bump into someone who's seen your GC serving. And they say, why did you come this morning? And you're like, well, you know, I didn't really want to come here, but I came because I kind of had to come. I came out of a sense of duty, and, but I made a sacrifice. I got out of bed and I came here and I did it for you. Now, do you think that would feel particularly loved by that? Not really. But if you said to someone, you know what? I didn't particularly feel like coming this morning, but I got out of bed because I was motivated by this reality that when I serve you, I benefit from it. I feel joy. I feel encouraged. Now, will the person feel loved by that? Of course they will. They're not loved by your dutiful observance. And the same reality goes for God. God feels loved when we enjoy Him not when we seek to earn his approval by denying ourselves and making sacrifices. It's all about Jesus. We don't need legalism because Jesus has done away with the law. We don't need mysticism because Jesus has revealed the mystery to us. We don't need this harsh asceticism because Jesus has paid for our sins in his body. And the solution is not that our desires are too strong, to quote C.S. Lewis again. The problem is that they're actually too weak. We're chasing after things that have temporary satisfaction when we ought to be chasing after things that are ultimately satisfying, ultimately fulfilling, that will only be found in Christ. Psalm 16 verse 11 says this, You have made known to me the path of life in your presence, O God. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, the offer of the, the, the Christian faith is eternal joy and lasting pleasure. Why have we turned the narrative into don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, or you're going to go to hell? When what we ought to be offering is you're selling yourself short. Come and experience a far greater joy than you have ever imagined in relationship with God through faith in Jesus. You know, we often make Christianity about law and not grace. We often make it about duty and denial and not about joy. Paul says, look guys, you've got this all back to front. Those things are not markers of genuine faith and spirituality. Many of you here live as if that's true. Many of you here live as if God desires your discomfort and unhappiness. Jesus came to set you free, to enjoy him and experience life abundantly. Many of you here have been fed a narrative of Christianity that is we are boring, we don't have any joy, we don't have any fun, it's all about rules. 
If that's, if that's what you've heard about the Christian faith, you've been misinformed. It's the exact opposite of that. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life, have it abundantly. Jesus has come to set you free. Jesus has come to give you fullness. Friends, we're going to respond in a number of ways to this good news of the gospel. As Brian mentioned earlier, our prayer team up the back will be there. They would love to pray for you. Maybe you're wrestling with this legalism in your heart. And you want to be set free from that. Head up the back. They would love to pray for you. Maybe you're just not experiencing the joy that you know God desires for you right now. Head up the back and someone will pray for you that God would restore to you the joy of your salvation. We're going to respond in the Lord's Supper down the front and halfway up the back of four stations with grape juice and bread on there. This is a meal. If you love Jesus, this, this meal is a reminder for you. And he's given us tangible reminders of what he's done. Bread and grape juice. Bread that symbolizes his body that was broken. Grape juice that symbolizes the blood that was spilled out on your behalf for your forgiveness to set you free. If you love Jesus, come forward and remember this meal by dipping the bread in the grape juice and eating it and remembering in a very tactile way what Jesus has done. And finally, as the band comes out, we're going to respond by worshiping together this Jesus who has set us free. Yes, I'm going to pray. Let's stand, church, and let's respond together to the good news of a God who wants us to enjoy Him. Wants us to enjoy Him. Let's pray. God, I thank You this morning that You're a God who does not desire our harsh asceticism, self-denial that has an, in, an, in and of itself an end of feeling sacrificial and super spiritual because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. God, we want to come before you this morning and say our hearts so quickly go to those things, to religiosity, to our own efforts. God, we thank you that in Jesus he has done it all. We thank you that he has paid the price. We thank you that he has set us free. And now, because of that, we worship you and we enjoy you. Please make this real for us today and tomorrow for the rest of this week. We pray this in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen.